Well, hello and welcome everyone today to this webinar on strategies for managing pension costs. This is probably one of the most important issues that's going to be commanding the attention of finance professionals and their human resource colleagues for the next decade or more. Uh, so it's something that's really important for you to be figuring out and to analyze effectively. So we're so delighted to have a, a great group of presenters here to help us in, in moving forward with this topic. This is the 21st year of the CSMFO coaching program. Uh, delighted to be offering this to you for that length of time. Uh, and we have the guidance of the Career Development Committee under the chair of Laura Nomura and 12 volunteers that select topics like this and presenters uh, for us to work with in helping to bring these webinars and other tools uh, to your benefit. In terms of today's session, we're going to be uh, targeting on you know what strategies are available to mitigate pension cost increases, what are the opportunities uh, both within the pension regulations and as well through labor relations for you to address those, uh, what roles can the strategies play, and how can you do that in a way that's going to be effective in uh, moving forward? Um, so let me uh, just uh, say that we're pleased to have uh, Steve uh, Berliner uh, from uh, Liebert Cassidy Whitmore uh, presenting, uh, an expert on this topic. We're also going to be hearing from Monica Irons uh, from the uh, City of San Luis Obispo. She's the Human Resources Director there. Um, they're really uh, taking outstanding work and leading uh, creative thinking about how to address these topics. And we're pleased to have as our CSMFO color commentator, uh, Steve Heidi, who's from the Chino Fire uh, District. And he's going to be uh, helping to focus in on what uh, you as finance professionals will especially want to take from today's session. Also delighted that Steve is the president-elect of CSMFO. So Steve, thanks for coming up to bat on many ways for the organization. That's outstanding. And I know you had some comments you wanted to share uh, with people as they focus in on this session. Well, thanks, Don. Appreciate that. Welcome, everybody. I'm excited about this session. I think it's very timely. Uh, looking forward to all the information that... Uh, Steve and Monica have to share with us this morning. But wanted to start out just uh, highlighting a couple of things for our members and other attendees to consider. And while you're going to have a lot of discussion today, and certainly rightfully so on the pension liability issues, just want to remind folks uh, on the OPEB side, for those of you that have OPEB obligations, that for many of us, OPEB can be as well a significant liability. Uh, in some cases, potentially more significant or more substantial than pension liabilities. And so while pensions have been more in the news of late, uh, just a reminder as you move through the presentation and contemplate your strategies that uh, don't forget about your OPEB opportunities here. Uh, when GASB 45 was introduced about 10 years ago, that created an initial focus on OPEB, and a lot of folks moved toward 115 trusts for OPEB or other strategies. Um, and since then, not as much focus has been uh, set on uh, the, our OPEB obligations. But now I think with GASB 75 sort of renewing the focus on uh, post-retirement liabilities, there are some good opportunities and takeaways from today's session that I think may help those folks who would consider redoubling their efforts with regard to their OPEB in addition to their pension liability strategies. Uh, additionally, um, we're in 
a great time with our 1920 budget development cycles, I think, to mindfully include any potential budget we want to add as a result of the discussions today and beyond in terms of developing our professional network or other programs that potentially can help us manage these liabilities and the associated professional costs in particular and or administrative costs that might be associated with executing these strategies. So please keep that in mind as we move through the presentation. And then finally, um, even though budget uh, tends to be our focus and that's short term, uh, at best for those folks that are on a two-year budget, maybe uh, you know the next couple of fiscal years, but certainly these are long-term obligations that require long-term strategies. So as we move through the presentation, you know, just be mindful of the, the structural issues that are associated with these liabilities. And you know, keep in mind, and I know Monica will touch base on this in her part of the presentation, but if you're not already making long-term projections, certainly at least into the five to 10-year range, hopefully by the conclusion of this seminar, you'll realize that you should be doing that and uh, with that, that concludes my opening comments. Thank you very much, Steve, Heidi. Uh, so let's go to our first polling question here. Uh, we always like to see uh, the size of our audience here, not just to get the statistics on that, but uh, really to encourage you to be uh, drawing in, uh, especially on a topic like this, your, your human resource colleagues, others on your team, uh, as we find that agencies that do that uh, your your learning and your implementation of the ideas and thoughts go up geometrically uh, when you uh, have uh, additional people participating with you. So we'll leave this open for just a minute. And, and we, again, we encourage your questions today, so type them in in the question function. I'll be reviewing them and passing them on to our, our panelists at appropriate times uh, so that we can uh, get as many issues and concerns that you have addressed as possible. Um, we know that there's some recent uh, court decisions that have happened just in the last week or so. Uh, and Steve uh, Berliner from Liebert Cassidy Whitmore will be talking about those. Uh, so we've got lots to cover in today's session. So let's just take a quick look at how our audience is shaped up here. Um, we see that um, uh, about three quarters of you are there on your own. We're glad that every one of you is with us. Uh, and the other quarter in uh, small groups, that's great. Uh, glad to have you, glad to have your participation in today's session. So with that, I'm going to turn over the um, presentation to Steve Berliner, partner at Liebert Cassidy uh, Whitmore. And Steve, you're, you're good to go here. Okay, good morning, everyone. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this is uh, obviously a uh, an active topic, uh, as Don mentioned, there's been some recent developments in in the law, uh, particularly with the California Supreme Court and what is known as the California Rule, and we will address that. Unfortunately, uh, the legal term for what happened in that case was uh, the Supreme Court punted. Not really a legal term, it's the one that I think is most appropriate. So we don't have an answer yet, uh, but there is basically a pipeline of cases waiting to be heard that might give us a more definitive uh, ruling on what the viability of that rule is and 
the ability to uh, retain uh, retirement benefits and or best them, uh, best in them. So our agenda, it's a short one. It's a short agenda because uh, I am going to lay the foundation of where we are from a, a legal standpoint, what our challenges are when we're talking about the pension costs and what can be done about them, the strategies that we have now that are available under the current state of the law. Of course, if the California Court of Appeal, uh, Supreme Court rules uh, on the California rule in the next few months in substance, uh, th those strategies may change or they may not. And th there's a lot of things that have to happen before that. Those strategies would change significantly. And finally, uh, a concrete action plan, things that you may or may not have thought of, but certainly you want to plan in place not only to deal with the, the pension costs that you have now, but uh, pension costs as they increase in the coming years. Okay, I want to push this forward. There we go. All right. So legal challenges. All right, here's the, the, the significant, well, let's go back, hold on, having a little trouble here. There we go. All right, here's the, the main legal challenges that we have as individual public entities to make changes to our retirement benefits that may reduce the cost. And one of the key components of the California rule is that when someone is hired, it's assumed that they vest in the ability to get the benefits that had been promised them, not only for the services they've already rendered, but it kind of sets it in stone going forward. So there have been attempts over the years to try to lower the benefits that an employee can accrue for future service. And as of right now, not only because of the, the court-created statutory, uh, court-created California rule, but also because of statutory law, that's not available to public agencies. In addition, one of the tools that uh, existed pre-PEPRA was to create tiers, a lower tier. I have some clients that even before PEPRA already had three tiers of benefits but it didn't violate the California rule to do that because we weren't talking about existing employees. We were talking about people who were hired after the new tier went into effect, the result being they did not yet invest in those higher benefits. They knew what they were gonna get coming in was gonna be something lower in the future. Uh, Pepper did away with that. I've gotten numerous uh, calls and emails from clients saying, we were proactive. We instituted a second tier in our safety group, for example. It turns out now that puts us at a competitive disadvantage. And in fact, they want to get rid of their second tier or third tier in favor of the higher tier. That is not an option right now. The only option for tiering right now is the ability to lower the benefits for new safety members. And what did I mean new safety members? Those are safety members hired after PEPRA who did not already have 
membership in a public retirement system. I do not know of one agency that has actually utilized this provision. Uh, what I am hearing uh, from most of my clients is the ability to recruit, especially police officers, is very difficult. Uh, less people want to be police officers. And right now, the majority of agencies competing for those new officers have a level playing field with regard to what they offer them for pension benefits. So going to a lower tier would likely put them at a competitive disadvantage. Um, So we hear the, the term vested benefits, really what is that? And that's, that is the heart of the California rule. The California rule is a little, a little bit different, but let, let's talk about just general principles of why a, a benefit would be vested. Um, it's a constitutional protection. It's set forth in both the U.S. and the California contract uh, constitutions each has what is known as a contract clause. And that contract clause says that a government may not impair its vested contractual rights. Government can enter into a contract, whether it's with employees or whether it's with a third party vendor, and then pass a law saying, we are not gonna pay it. That's what that's intended to prevent. How does that apply here? It has been applied by the courts to the promise of a pension benefit. How is that, how is that work? Well, it's considered that when an employer offers employment with a promised benefit of a retirement benefit, the employee by working, agreeing to work, is earning that benefit and is complying with its part of the contract. It is accepting the contract. So, if the benefit had vested, the employer cannot take it away because it's a contract. Uh, so that, that's the basis for uh, the whole concept of vesting and ultimately underpinning the California rule. So once your employee begins to work, they vest in a future benefit, which means they vest in the right to continue earning it until something else happens, like they get fired or they leave. Obviously, they don't have the right to continue earning any vested benefits beyond the point where they work. So there are conditions subsequent on that. So, all right, let me go back. Excuse me. All right, maybe Don, you could help me here. And I apologize for that. I am going in the wrong direction. Here we go. California rule. Okay, and I apologize for that. Uh, the court decisions have created the rule. It's a, it's a court rule. It's not really a statutory rule, but again, it's based on constitutional principles. That is that the pension becomes uh, vested when employment starts. And... If it is, in fact, vested, you can't impair it. And impairment doesn't necessarily mean every change, but impairment means any change that would reduce that pension. There is a carve-out that the courts have developed, and that is if you have a vested pension right, you can still, as an employer, impair it, 
but it can't be just to save money necessarily. There has to be some relationship to the preservation of the retirement system, and it has to happen before individuals retire, so while they're still employees, and and the problem that means why we generally have only taken action as to future employees, if a current employee's vested right has been impaired, the employer has to provide an alternative equal benefit. And that basically eliminates your cost savings. So what's on the horizon? The California Supreme Court will eventually decide if the California rule still applies. Um, we, again, we were hoping for that to happen last week. It didn't. The court did not get to that issue. In addition, even if there was a ruling that the California rule is either invalid or can legally be limited so that some changes can, can be made, there are statutes on the books that need to be changed. So there would have to be a combined effort, uh, including legislative changes, particularly in the, in the public employees retirement law for CalPERS agencies. That law has to change. Otherwise, the court ruling will be nice to talk about in, in law school um, and by commentators, but it won't have a lot of impact for you as practitioners in this area. So you may have heard of CAL FIRE. I know our firm put out a special bulletin last week. Other firms have put out special bulletins. There are numerous uh, articles written in the local press or in the statewide press. Even I've been contacted by the Wall Street Journal about it. So it's, it's of national significance. There are three cases that have been before the California Supreme Court, three main cases. There, may, there are, in fact, others, but these are the three main cases. The Cal Fire decision, the Alameda County decision from the Court of Appeal, as well as the Marin County uh, decision. The Marin case was accepted for review by the California Supreme Court first. Then the other two came about. You would think the Marin case would then be argued first before the California Supreme Court, but that's not what happened. Marin is being held in abeyance until there's a ruling in Alameda. And the issues are almost the same in those two cases. That doesn't, in fact, implicate PERS law. These are cases under the 37 Act, which is the, cal the county law for county independent retirement systems. And so what did the court do? It took up the case that gave it the opportunity to provide the most narrow ruling it could. And that was this elimination of airtime for PEPRA, existing PEPRA, uh, excuse me, existing classic members at the time PEPRA was passed. And the California court of, uh, Supreme Court said just last week, we agree that airtime is not vested. They went through an analysis on what the rules are for what is a vested benefit and how do you prove that. Because they determined airtime was not vested, 
the court did not have to get to the issue of whether an impairment of a vested benefit requires alternative benefits. So essentially, as I mentioned before, they punted on the issue of the California rule by picking this argument to be heard first. And if you remember airtime, that was the ability to buy up to five years of service credit at your expense uh, as an employee uh, to enhance your retirement benefits. That went away as part of PEPRA, and the impact was not only for new members, but for those who were already members, those classic members. And the court said airtime is not uh, any way tied to hours worked or time put in, and therefore it's not a core benefit, and they could find no clear, explicit evidence anywhere in the legislative history or in the statute itself that said it was vested, meaning there was no promise that would create a contract with these employees that you will always have airtime available. And that's what they look at when determining whether a benefit is vested. They look at the contract principle. Was a contract made to make it permanent? And there was none in the court's ruling. Now, under both Alameda, which is the one that's been fully briefed and will likely be the one that gets heard by the California Supreme Court next, that one deals with PEPRA changes to existing employees on the issue of compensation earnable. What is and what is included in compensation earnable? And compensation earnable is the final compensation that's put in the retirement formulas to determine or, or uh, help determine retirement benefits. So everything else being equal, a higher compensation earnable will get, grant higher retirement benefits. If you reduce that, the opposite happens. And that's what this 37 Act rule change as part of PEPRA did. These current employees uh, brought suit. And in fact, in Alameda, the Court of Appeal determined that there, there likely is a vested right. Whereas the Marin case had said, well, may, whether it's vested or not, the idea of providing alternative benefits is not a mandatory thing. Even though the, all the prior opinions said shall, or most of them did, shall pay to provide alternative benefits, they say shall means should. So now we have uh, two courts of appeal issuing two diverse opinions on something that impacts the California uh, Constitution and the federal Constitution, we will get a ruling on that in the future, probably within, I would say, a year. I'm hoping before the end of the year that that will, will happen. I mentioned statutes. There's also a statutory uh, restriction. Government Code 20474 is part of public employees' retirement law. And so whenever, in the, in the years, uh, in the early 2000s, when many agencies amended their contract to provide the enhanced benefit formulas, three at 60 for miscellaneous, you know what they are, three at 50 for police, there's a few others. This government code says, and has always said, that doing that, 
electing to amend your contract, that amendment is irrevocable until terminated. So you would have to terminate your PERS contract in order to provide something else for future service. Assuming you could even do that because we get a ruling that the California uh, rule is, is invalid. We all know, because most of our uh, governing bodies have asked us to look into terminating our, the CalPERS contract, and while the discussion starts there, it usually ends when you find out what it's going to cost. The, the uh, termination liability for many agents is, is in um, uh, tens of millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, so that usually is not an option. So when, even if the California rule goes away, we still have to have this statute changed for the most part. Okay, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is movement on the retiree medical benefit front. And until these California uh, Supreme Court and Court of Appeal cases on the California rule came around, it appeared that retiree medical benefits were in fact treated differently. However, the same vesting principles apply, and and the Court of Appeal and uh, the Supreme Court in Cal Fire relied on some of these cases relating to retiree medical to determine something is or is not vested. Uh, under the current law, the way the the cases have developed, specifically talking about retiree medical benefits, it's likely in most cases it's not, cases it's not a vested benefit. Uh, the courts have established an extremely high bar for uh, employees to prove they're entitled to the benefit perpetually because it's vested. So now we know that if it's not vested, it's easier to make changes. Why? Because there's no requirement to give an alternative benefit. And many public agencies have cut back on retiree medical. Uh, for those agencies in PEMCA, PERS Medical, there is a statute to be aware of, and that is the setting of the contribution under PEMCA. Uh, I think a very good argument is that it is not vested, and how do we, how do we determine that? Well, look at the underlined italic language in that, uh, statute. It is, uh, the, they shall set the contribution rate which shall be fixed from time to time by resolution. So if it can be fixed from time to time, that means it's clearly not intended to be fixed forever. So by statute, it is not something that employees will generally be able to stop you from doing, assuming you go through all the other processes you have to. Now, has the, if the agency bound itself by saying that despite this statute, we intend to provide X amount of dollars towards retiree medical under PEMCA forever, well, that would give the employees a better argument that nonetheless, there was an intent to vest that amount. Of course, you're all aware of the minimum and equal contribution rules. So when you fix from time to time, you're still subject to the minimum rule and the benefit for employees and retirees has to be the same. And now we've got a quick comment here. 
from on this topic from uh, Steve Heidi. Steve, did you want to uh, comment about PEMCA? Yeah, I just want to uh, remind the uh, listeners that for those of you that are PEMCA agencies, uh, with regard to your uh, aforementioned minimum contributions, that those do factor into your actuarial liability. So in theory, even if you were not offering a post-employment benefit beyond the employer minimum, you would still have an actuarial liability associated with that. So if you're considering those types of changes, um, keep in mind you will still have that employer minimum related actuarial liability and that you should consult your OPEB actuary to understand the impacts of any associated changes. And if you don't already, uh, you should have an ongoing relationship with your OPEB actuary so that you can uh, get a handle on these types of issues. And really, for that matter, um, same goes with your retirement actuary, particularly if you are in the PERS system as we are. Um, I have ongoing discussions with our PERS actuary on obviously other issues not related to this particular topic, but you should have ongoing relationships with both your OPEB actuary as well as your retirement actuary. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. So we're going to go to a polling question now uh, because we want to get a read on where you are in your organization with regard to these topics. So uh, please uh, check off uh, what your situation is. And again, if you have questions that you want to be asking the presenters, please type them in in the question function. I'll be reviewing those and bringing them up as appropriate during the during the session. Um, in, you know, one of the things that I'm wondering uh, about as this uh, is going along here is, is sort of the philosophical question here of, you know, how do finance directors who stand to benefit from, you know, whatever are the more favorable uh, decisions with regard to uh, what an agency does for retirement, uh, but yet the finance directors are also there trying to uh, help uh, handle the the situation and to help uh, look out for the agency's interest. Uh, how uh, Steve Heidi or, or Monica Irons have you have you found ways in, in your circumstances to negotiate that kind of dual role in that situation? Probably exists as well for the human resource uh, professionals. Quick comment. Hmm. Monica, do you want to start, or do you want me to? I'm going to let you go ahead. Okay. Well, from my perspective, Don, um, you know, first off, I, I think as finance director, I set the tone fiscally for the organization and try to lead by example. Uh, but for me, it's it's a very simple answer, and that is that I'm here to serve the mission, which is ultimately to serve the public and not to serve self. And so I have to take the perspective of what's best for the district, for our taxpayers, ultimately for those we serve, and uh, hold you know my fiduciary responsibility in that regard as the highest standard to which I'm obligated. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, so we're seeing from the polling question here that uh, this is a, a, a big uh, substantial issue for people that are on this webinar. We're not surprising, that's why you joined in. Uh, but, uh, you know, the vast majority of you are facing challenges and you need to be doing more and you're trying to figure out uh, how to do that. So we're going to jump now uh, to the discussion about solutions. Uh, so Steve Berliner is going to be sharing with you 
some of the kinds of solutions that you might consider, um, and then uh, some action plan items. But we'll move along fairly briskly here because we want to be sure that we have uh, time for people to see how all these come together in an actual agency situation as described by Monica Irons for the city of San Luis Obispo. Okay, great. Um, so strategies. The biggest uh, strategy that's available now that everyone should be starting if they haven't already is having employees share the burden. There are uh, strategies in place, statutory uh, provisions that allow this to happen. Uh, reduce purgeable items and uh, restructure retiree health benefits. And in under, go back to the second bullet point, under reduce purgeable items, uh, that's also, uh, we're talking about reducing the increase in purgeable items uh, because employees will continue to ask for further compensation, but it can be done in a way that doesn't have as great an impact on your PERS or retirement costs. So cost sharing. I'm not really talking about reducing EPMC, employer paid member contributions. Many agencies have already done that and uh, that's the easiest thing to do. But let's talk about cost sharing. 10 years ago, there was cost sharing was on the books, but almost never, no one did it. So over the last 10 years, we're seeing more and more agencies that do this. And in fact, there's been a really, really big push the last, I'd say, two to three years. So government code section 20516 uh, was pre-PEPRA. PEPRA made it much easier and flexible on how you can do this cost sharing. And cost sharing is reverse EPMC. It's where the employee pays part of the employer share. You can do it by a CalPERS contract amendment. It's the more complicated way of doing it. CalPERS even directs you to do it in a different method. It requires an election. It requires a lot of different things, and it needs to apply to more than one uh, uh, bargaining group in most cases, although there's been some change in that in, in PEPRA. You can apply cost sharing under 20516 to classic or and new members, and we'll talk about whether that's a good strategy to apply it to new members. It can be now, even though it used to be limited after PEPRA, if you can get the employees to agree, they can pay the entire employer contribution. Uh, and you could have different do different percentages for classics and for new, and that is percent percentage of compensation earnable that they're going to essentially refund back to the to the employer. The big problem with 20516 is it is by agreement only, and that usually means there's going to be something that has to be provided to employees in order to get them to agree. So there's two methods of doing it. I, I mentioned there's a contract amendment method. Employees like that if they're going to have to do this because their contributions are considered employee contributions, meaning if they withdraw their contributions, they get those cost-sharing amounts back. It requires an election, but it's generally accepted as pre-income tax. Government Code 20516F means you do it just in a bargaining unit. It's considered an employer contribution, so the employees lose that amount. It's usually treated by most agencies as pre-income tax, but I don't believe the IRS ever ruled on it. So that remains a gray area. 
but 20516F is generally easier to accomplish. Now the question is, are unrepresented employees subject to cost sharing because uh, cost sharing is by agreement only? Well, if their represented employees have cost sharing, then generally you could have, and you must have, the unrepresented employees in the similar membership class, such as unrepresented managers uh, who are miscellaneous, would have to do cost sharing if the represented miscellaneous groups do it. If you're going through 20516F, which is in an MOU, well, you don't have an MOU for unrepresented employees. So the, the general wisdom has always been you cannot do 20516 uh, uh, cost sharing. But now it seems that there, I have been hearing anecdotally that CalPERS is saying otherwise, but it's, it needs to be in an MOU by statute. So I would, I would exercise some caution before doing that. So can you impose costs? Remember the cost sharing is by agreement. Can you impose costs? Well, government code section 20516.5 says you can, and it went into effect last year. It's limited. It's much more limited than you would think. Um, and, but it does allow imposition. Now, it's mostly going to be used for safety in most cases uh, because most uh, miscellaneous are already paying the limited amount that 20516.5 allows. And it's also only for classics because one of the caps is 50% of normal cost. We know under PEPRA, new members are already paying that. And if you already have a 20516 cost share in place, then that goes towards your limit under 20516.5. So it has been questioned back and forth, what's the difference between 20516.5 and 20516, and how do you adopt it? Well, they're different. And as you can see here, 20516.5 does not require an election. It doesn't require an MOU. And it's, it's in all cases a member contribution. Again, so employees can get that back if they withdraw their contributions. So um, how is it implemented if an employer unilaterally imposes? CalPERS has not yet put on any guidance, but we believe it requires a resolution of the governing body. Why? Because when you impose terms, uh, after impasse in meet and confer, you're not creating a contract. So there's no contract to adopt. You're creating a resolution setting terms and conditions. This would be a term and condition that you would be imposing. So the likely route is via resolution. Other strategies uh, related to cost sharing is you have to decide who you're going to apply it to. If it's 20516, you can apply it if there's agreement to classic members. What I'm seeing is it's not being applied to classic, only, excuse me, to new members. It's only to classic members. Why? Well, new members are generally only paying more and they're getting a lower benefit and it's easier to negotiate. 
it, it's harder to negotiate and get those new members, many of which are now becoming 30, 40, 50% of bargaining units, to agree to do cost sharing. And remember, we need agreement unless you're going to impose under the limited circumstances you're allowed to. Uh, what about offsets? Are you going to provide uh, cost sharing but give a salary increase? Are you going to give a salary increase that equals the cost sharing amount? Well, if you do that, you're not really saving any money. You're actually increasing your cost because the 1% salary increase in exchange for cost sharing of 1% costs you more than 1% because of the roll-up. So there are pros and cons of doing offset. Generally, I have not seen a reduction of, uh, excuse me, cost sharing going into effect without some kind of salary offset. You can negotiate swaps to reduce reportable compensation or at least limit it. Uh, some of the examples, salary, which is perceivable for healthcare contributions, which are not perceivable, and special compensation for maybe an alternative work week is something the employees have wanted for a long time, and that's something you can provide them that is not going to increase your CalPERS costs but you might get a cap or some reduction in special compensation to accomplish it. Those are things to start looking at. And I think Steve Heidi had a, a comment after this one. Is that right? No? Yes, I just wanted to, to add that if you are considering any special pay or benefit enhancements in lieu of salary increase, uh, make sure that you consult with your FLSA and tax attorney specialist as you don't want to potentially create any unintended additional liability for the agency by making changes in this area, which could expose you with regard to the Fair Labor Standards Act or potentially in the tax area. Yeah, very good point. One of the things that I am doing now at the table is negotiating increases in health care, but that uh, contributions, but those contributions. Uh, will not be able to be cashed out or at all taken in cash. Uh, there only can be used those additional amounts only for the benefits. The reason being after the Flores decision, we don't want more cash coming out to have to be included in the regular rate. Provide non-perceivable forms of payment to both classic and new members. More time off. Health benefits, as we, we mentioned. I'm seeing a lot of requests for contributions to retiree medical trusts. Those are not perceivable. Structure specialty pays to not satisfy CalPERS's regulation for reporting them. One of those being hybrid specialty pays. You could have longevity, but only if the person has a certain uh, score on their evaluation. That would be a hybrid that is not perceivable. That's one way to structure it. Discretionary bonuses. There's no system in place. There's nothing that an employee can point to to say, I did this, I'm entitled to the bonus. Purely discretionary bonuses are not perceivable for classics. 
and no bonuses of any kind are purchasable for new members. Another thing you can do is give a minimal salary increase, which obviously will impact your, your PERS costs, but put the bulk of the enhancement in a one-time payment in the same fiscal year. Doing that, CalPERS has said, will make it non-PERSable on the stipend. So quarter percent, half percent salary increase, and give a big lump sum. That big lump sum will not go into your PERS cost as long as you do it in the same fiscal year. New members have some different rules. You can put money into uniform allowance. It's PERSable for classics, but not new members. Any one-time payment is not reportable for new members. Doesn't matter whether you do a salary increase in the fiscal year or not. It's never reportable for them, as are bonuses. Bonuses, discretionary or not, are not reportable for new members. So that's another way to keep a handle on your costs. Uh, we talked about this uh, briefly. Many agencies have uh, reduced or eliminated retiree medical. The thing you want to do is see, has there been a vested benefit created? Look at the document, whether it's charter, uh, muni code, MOU, personnel rules, establishing the benefit that was promised and whether or not it's vested. More likely than not, under the current case law, it will not be vested. And then negotiate, and you can impose this after going through the impasse procedures, reductions in the retiree medical benefits that current employees can receive when they do retire. If someone's already retired and getting a certain amount of benefit, if it's vested, uh, it's unlikely that you can change it even if you give alternative benefits. Whether or not you can provide, I mean, cut that benefit for retirees if it's not vested, the argument there's a sound argument to be made that you can. I think it's still still a gray area and still a risk because my experience is courts protect the retirees more than they do the employees. So PEMCA, let's get back to that. No matter what you do, you have to comply with the minimum and the equal contribution rule. That's something to always keep in effect. When agencies are looking at PEMCA, I tell them, if you go to PEMCA, you will never have a retirement contribution of zero. When this started out a decade ago, it was $16. Now it's $136. It's going to keep going up. So how about an action plan? What should, what, what should you be thinking about doing on a regular basis on this issue? So... If you haven't done it, if you haven't gotten that low-hanging fruit, eliminate or reduce EPMC. That can be imposed. You can impose the, the reduction in EPMC. Utilize the two cost-sharing statutes to the extent possible. Take inventory of all reportable items of pay and then use that as the basis to swap for some other form of non-reportable compensation. You'd be surprised how many purseable items you likely have negotiated over the years in your MOUs. I think the next one is very important. Have the government governing body adopt a policy that it's going to uh, limit increases in reportable compensation. 
that can set the tone for negotiations and make it more likely that employees will buy into getting a bigger chunk, let's say, in, in uh, a retiree medical trust in lieu of a smaller salary increase. You can, when you structure your future compensation to be non-reportable, you have to remember to make some affirmative statement, whether it's in the MOU or otherwise, you actually intended to do that because what CalPERS has been doing is saying, oh, you must have done that by mistake. So we have the ability to correct the mistake and make it persable. If you say up front that your intention was and all parties agreed it would not be persable, I think that'll go a long way to uh, counter that argument. Unfunded liabilities, you know, you have to determine if paying extra with let's say you have one-time monies coming in, whether that's worthwhile, when it would have the most impact uh, now or later, and what it will save the agency in the future. Uh, work with CalPERS or hire your own actuary for guidance on what would be the best amount to contribute towards unfunded liabilities and when. Uh, and of course, unfunded liabilities are reduced if you reduce retiree medical benefit promises. Work with the League of California Cities and other organizations to push back on these future increases and lobby for change in some of the statutes, as I mentioned, like 20475. If we get a positive ruling for employers on the California rule, that's the next thing that has to fall before meaningful changes can occur. Okay, we're going to go to our next polling question here. So uh, Steve Berliner uh, from Liebert Cassidy and Whitmore has laid out for you a uh, number of action steps. I'm just capturing a few of them here uh, in this polling question. Interested in seeing uh, which of these action steps uh, you think would be uh, appropriate for your agency to explore and, and pursue. Um, have, a take, have you take a look at that. Um, meanwhile, I'm going to, I've got a couple of questions here, so we're just going to go to very quick responses. One clarification, uh, Steve Berliner on section 20516 where it requires election. Uh, the person here wants to clarify, does that mean an election of the voters or an election of all the affected employees? Uh, that is an election of the employees. So even if you negotiate and get the employee group the, uh, to ratify an MOU that it will have cost sharing via PERS contract amendment, you would have to have a PERS election not only of those employees, but any non-represented that would be impacted. If you go via MOU only, you don't have to have an election. Ratification of an MOU kicks it into place. Okay, and then a, a quick response here and a question that came in with regard to um, uh, getting uh, how to handle the uh, non-representative employees. A person wants to clarify, um, is it okay to do that by a resolution, not an MOU of the governing body? Well, uh, that's another one of those gray areas that if you look at the plain language of the statute, the unrepresented employees do cost sharing by contract amendment as a tag along to a represented group that agrees to it. Recently, CalPERS has indicated to my, some of my clients that Unrepresented alone can do cost sharing on the 20516A as long as 
there's either, either an election or they sign some document agreeing to the withholding. Uh, I have not seen any official communication to that effect. So it's anecdotal information I'm receiving. So if it's something you want to do, you should contact CalPERS and they will give you uh, their list of items that you need to do to make that happen. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve Berliner. Lots of good ideas there. As we can see from the polling question, people are picking up on these, uh, which is a perfect lead-in to our presentation from Monica Irons. So we're bringing Monica on. Thank you so much for joining us, Monica, uh, and helping to share how you and San Luis Obispo have pulled together these different strands and approaches uh, to come up with a solution that makes sense for your community. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a template that others can have in mind to pick the right choices for their agency. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Don and Steve Heidi for hosting that, and Steve Berliner for um, just a great, solid foundation in terms of the legal aspects, which is so important on this uh, topic. I think advancing the first slide is the hardest, so <laughs> let me see if I can do that. Uh, Perfect. Okay. So what I want to do is really walk you through the story of San Luis Obispo, which starts back in late 2017 when CalPERS made the announcement about reducing the discount rate, how we grappled with um, accepting, understanding, and then accepting the reality of those um, uh, impacts on pension costs to the city of San Luis Obispo how we went um, about educating others, uh, the plan that we've put together, and then an update in terms of how we are implementing that plan that includes how we have bargained with our employee units. First, a little bit about San Luis Obispo. Um, we are located on the central coast of California, halfway between LA and San Francisco. For those of you who haven't been here, you really need to come and uh, spend some money in our city. <laughs> Um, so, we are a full-service city, police, fire, water, wastewater. Um, we serve a population that grows during the day to about 80,000 um, because we are the county seat. We are the home of Cal Poly State University, and we have a, a two-year community college main campus just outside our city limits. We provide those services with just under 400 full-time equivalent employees that are represented by four labor groups. Uh, in terms of uh, general fund revenue sources, the, you'll see the majority is uh, general sales tax. Included in that is a half-cent sales tax um, that was approved by the voters initially in 2007, renewed, has a sunset clause, so renewed again in 2014, and then has a sunset clause in 2021-22. And that's kind of an important um, time frame in terms of the story about the impact of pension cost increases. And then TOT and property tax are next uh, significant drivers in terms of general fund revenue. So accepting the reality, um, I don't think that CalPERS's decision to reduce the uh, discount rate came as a surprise, but it was still a difficult to hear that news. And um, I remember our city manager at the time coming in and talking uh, to me about the news and the potential impact. And from a San Luis Obispo standpoint, 
we had weathered through the deep recession and we had um, asked our employees to take significant uh, concessions. So we had negotiated with all employees a 6.8% total compensation reduction in um, over the course of 2011-12. And, and we had negotiated a second tier pension in advance of PEPRA coming into effect. And so in 2017, the economy was doing better. We were feeling like at last we had a break from reductions and doing more with less. And then we get, once again, the news from CalPERS. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to recognize that these impacts that we don't have direct control over, but ultimately we need to uh, address them. And so we quickly convened the leadership team um, and worked closely, myself, our finance director, and the city manager on how do we really understand the impacts of the change in the discount rate. So as Steve has um, mentioned, uh, I felt we felt strongly that we really needed to consult an expert and, and get an actuarial in to do a long-term uh, projection of the impacts. We worked with Mary Beth Redding at uh, Bartell & Associates, and I can't say enough good things uh, about her, um, not only the analytic work, the actuarial work, but she has the gift of taking complicated information and being able to present it to those of us who don't love to spend our time in actuarial reports. And I think that's um, a pretty significant. She did a long-term uh, projection, I think it was about 20 or 25 years um, that she projected the impacts out. I agree that it's um, extremely important <coughs> with this issue to make sure that you're doing a long-term projection. And we did ask her to be conservative in the projections, and I know at some point in the long-term forecast, she actually reduced the um, CalPERS rate of return from seven to six and a half percent because as we're aware, they do have the ability to make future changes. And I think at this point, many of us anticipate that they will um, once again reduce the uh, discount rate further. So with that, um, Don, can you? There we go, thanks. Um, with that, we took that information and our finance department uh, put it into the city's fiscal, uh, long-term fiscal forecast. Um, collectively, we wanted to make uh, sure that we were had uh, agreed upon assumptions for that forecast at that point in time. And because this was really an isolated uh, issue, it wasn't a downturn in the economy, it was all about the PERS impact, we assumed that we would be able to continue current service levels. We wanted to continue the commitment to capital investment, including a slight increase due to ongoing maintenance. That's significant in San Luis Obispo because of that half-cent sales tax. That was something that the voters um, are really um, concerned about how we're using that additional uh, sales tax, and there is an expectation that we are taking care of um, our aging infrastructure. 
we modeled modest long-term revenue growth and inflation, so didn't assume that there was going to be another great recession. We also assumed that the sales tax measure that is sunsetting in 21-22 would be renewed by the voters. I believe that we get about $6 million in um, revenues from that, so it would be really significant to just uh, take that out of the forecast. And then from an enterprise fund perspective, uh, we kind of set the groundwork or the framework for our enterprise funds that their revenue projections that were approved, a rate, um, anticipated rate increases that were approved were fine, but that they weren't able to solve the additional impact of CalPERS problems directly by just going to the voters and asking for further rate increases. With that, we summed up our problem, um, acknowledging that we're not the only per, the only uh, city in California that's facing it. It's really about a matter of to what degree. And for the city of San Luis Obispo, the impact is that in 10-year time frame between 2014-15 and 24-25, our pension costs more than double. And so we talked about how do we get ahead of that curve if we act sooner rather than later to um, slow the rate of increases and allow us to put uh, one-time money aside to pay towards the unfunded liability, could we get ahead of the curve? And so this um, shows kind of the same uh, information in a different graphic. Um, again, you can see that our pension costs double more than double in 10 years. Uh, the red is our unfunded liability, the blue is the normal cost, and so I think this really emphasizes the fact that it's the unfunded liability that is significantly increasing. Steve, did you want to make a comment at this point? Yeah, thank you, Monica. I just wanted to, to amplify that the city of San Luis Obispo is not alone in this, obviously. And from my experience and my contacts, I think your numbers are fairly typical, at least of those with safety retirement obligations, of what these trends look like over about the next 10-year period. And, uh, you know, the old adage, a picture tells a thousand words, so just would encourage our listeners that if you haven't uh, taken a hard look at this and you haven't created these types of graphics, done this type of actuarial work, you need to do so and, you know, and go about educating stakeholders, labor, and others because, uh, you know, the numbers are what they are. It's not smoke and mirrors. And, uh, you know, these, these types of graphics and presentations, I think, are very powerful. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Steve. In terms of, you kind of stole my line, in terms of a picture is worth a thousand words, um, I think that this one, this one and the next one really sums that up. And we actually had people um, internally who were probably in a state of denial at the time, but I was hearing comments about, hey, you know, PERS has made adjustments in the past, um, but we can get through this. Um, the city doesn't have to overreact. Um, this will resolve itself. Remember the days when CalPERS was superfunded. And so our finance team put this uh, together, which is the long-term fiscal forecast. 
and you can clearly see that expenditures are outpacing revenues. And then the yellow line is the general fund um, balance, either over or under our policy level reserve. And um, what may be hard for you to see, so I'll highlight it, is as soon as 2019-20, we start going into the negative. And if you go out to 2031-32, we're $81 million below policy level reserve. So this um, did a nice job of kind of addressing that desire to ignore the problem, to hope that things were going to get better. Uh, and then the next slide is if we implement the plan, so we act sooner rather than later, we set money aside to pay down the unfunded liability, it indicates that we get ahead of that curve and um, we get into, in the longer, in the outer years, we get into um, basically alignment in terms of revenues and expenditures, and we're accumulating a positive balance above policy level reserve so that we can continue to make payments towards that unfunded liability. So now I want to move into um, a little bit about once we grappled with that as a leadership team, how we took that information out and shared it with others. First thing we did was develop key messages. We wanted to make sure that um, we were addressing things that we were already hearing as soon as the news came out about CalPERS making uh, the reduction in the discount rate. So the first item being, as Steve uh, reinforced, that this isn't an agency-specific problem. And that was important for us because we didn't want any rumors of mismanagement, um, that kind of thing. And then we also wanted to touch on the value of defined benefit retirement plans because I immediately people jumped to, hey, just get out of CalPERS, offer a 401k plan, and so we talked um, and had key messages around the benefit of retirement plans, not only from a recruitment and retention, but how does that translate to a benefit to the community? Being able to, re um, to retain uh, employees who serve the community, who develop knowledge that's really difficult to replace over years of serving the community, that commitment, and then also um, the value of having retirees in your community on a defined uh, income. Not only do they spend it, but those are oftentimes the people who are volunteering in nonprofits, serving on advisory bodies, maybe even running for council. We also highlighted some of the information that Steve Berliner mentioned about kind of the legal aspects of it's not as simple as just getting out of CalPERS and um, actually did some calculations in terms of what that cost would be. And as Steve Berliner mentioned, it is very significant. We did some work around, we can't invest our way out of this issue and we don't believe that CalPERS can either. Um, doing nothing increases the impact of the problem. And then the last one uh, was probably the most significant from the human resources standpoint, something that the leadership team discussed quite a bit which is this problem is directly correlated to 
retirement to employee benefits, and therefore employees must be part of the solution. So we pretty quickly signaled that to our employee population and kind of put them on notice that we anticipated concessions. San Luis Obispo can feel um, somewhat isolated and from a regional standpoint, so we quickly collaborated with other cities in our area. We invited all the city managers, finance directors to come together, and we invited our experts in to share the information. So Mary Beth Redding shared the actuarial analysis, and we, our finance director shared our, how we incorporated that into our fiscal forecast with the other uh, city managers in the region. We invited Dane Hutchings, um, who's a legislative uh, and a representative with the League of California Cities to come and speak to that group. Uh, Dane did an amazing job at really talking about the value of having a sustainable CalPERS pension system and the impact on all of us when uh, employers move into the terminated pool. And so that was really valuable. And then um, we work with Libra Cassidy Whitmore for our negotiations, and so we invited Rick Milanos, um, who's our chief negotiator, to come in and do very much what Steve did this, uh, on this session, kind of the foundation of the legal issues so that we could quickly um, come up to speed on some of the the request for, hey, just get out of it, replace it with a defined contribution plan, that kind of thing. Once we did that, we immediately invited those experts to come back and present to our employees. And this is something that um, I think really served us well. Um, I, we had great attendance. It was a a couple of sessions so that employees that are working different shifts could attend. It was an invitation from directly from our city manager signaling the importance of the communication and the presentation. And many employees talked to me after the fest and really were very appreciative of having outside experts coming in, having the ability to directly ask those experts questions that were on their mind and to not have it filtered in any way. So after that, we did a similar presentation for community members. We did it in a workshop uh, forum so that before a city manager walked them through the presentation, they were able to go around to different stations. They could talk to public works employees about pent-up capital improvement demand. They could talk to um, my team about what are the pension benefits? How does that work? And then they went in and got the information that I'm sharing today in terms of the work that we had done, the impact on the long-term forecast, and our plan for addressing it. We also did um, online surveys, opened up um, for both community and employees to ask questions and to provide suggestions. One word of caution is that if you do that, that can be very labor intensive. It's super important that if you open up that dialogue that somebody needs to respond to those questions and respond to those suggestions, it can be really valuable, but it is time consuming. And then of course we are bringing our council members along through this process. 
So let me highlight a little bit about the plan that we developed. We refer to it as the Fiscal Health Response Plan, or the FHRP. The overall objective was to address the budget or forecast gap, um, so, and to bank one-time money to put towards the unfunded liability. That's the $8.9 between all funds. Continue reasonable investment in infrastructure and continue investment in critical city services, major city goals, and the community priorities. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? So, in terms of what we're going to do with the money uh, that we set aside, fundamentally we identified two options, which are direct payment to CalPERS um, since 2014. We've uh, made about 2.7 uh, million in additional payments directly to CalPERS. And then at this point, we have approval from council to set up a 115 trust for potentially future payments. We have not yet identified a trust provider. We've been waiting to see. Uh, it sounds like CalPERS is going to get into that game in July. And so we've, we've been waiting. Uh, so that we can really do a thorough vetting of all the providers. The key components of the um, plan, probably not a surprise to anyone, that it's really how do, you, how do you address any gap. It's operating reductions, new revenues, and then for us, employee concessions. Um, the emphasis on revenues was truly new, so it wasn't increasing existing fees. It was, was there opportunity for new revenues? And so for the city of San Luis Obispo, the answer was yes, and it's um, primarily around cannabis. Um, there is the potential of exploring a stormwater utility as well. I want to focus on operating reductions because I had mentioned that we had been through um, concessions during the, the recession. We'd been through operating reductions. And so um, we didn't feel as if we could just go out to departments and ask them to cut more and yet sustain service levels. And so um, for the city of San Luis Obispo, what we're looking at under that bucket is really what we're calling thoughtful reorganizations. So we're taking advantage of a couple things. One is we have another wave of retirements in the next three to five years that is anticipated in the organization. And then along with that, we are implementing an ERP system, human capital management, and budget system. And so between the opportunity to examine vacancies through retirements and natural attrition and efficiencies of the new system, we are hoping that we can also look at thoughtful reorganizations that eventually net us uh, operating reduction. That ties into the time frame that we put together. So our plan is a three-year plan, and that was, again, purposeful um, to give us time for new revenues to fully develop and for those efficiencies and effectiveness to be identified and implemented. And then, of course, um, when you're talking about negotiating concessions, that can be a, a more lengthy process than normal negotiation. Okay, so Monica has highlighted for you some important foundational work that was undertaken in order to uh, create a level of understanding, 
uh, and comprehension of the uh, circumstances. And so I want you to, to tick off as many of these items as you think, uh, um, well, that, that your foundational steps that your agency has taken. Um, and uh, also thereby to highlight, you know, maybe some others that you want to be uh, developing uh, further. So we'll give a moment for that. While that's out, uh, let's just take a look at some of our questions that are, are coming up. Um, and uh, we've got a bunch of questions here. Well, some of them that are quite specific. Um, uh, and so we're going to take a look at uh, some of those towards the end and see if there's time to be getting to them in, in real uh, specific detail here. Uh, but, but Monica, I know we want to be sure to get into your bargaining strategies because that's a that's a, a critical element of how you put all of this uh, preparation into place. And so this has actually been what about a uh, a year's time, uh, more than a year's time that you've been developing uh, this uh, foundation and bargaining sequence uh, with your um, bargaining units, just to give people a sense of the time. Yeah, we um, we started working on it as soon as CalPERS made the announcement in late 2017, and and our our plan years are 18, 19, and then 19, 20, 20, 21. So they the we are right now working on our two-year financial plan that puts more detail into the second two years of the fiscal health response plan. Um, we also had the benefit of, as we were developing the plan and taking it to council in April of 2018, we had contracts with um, some of our bargaining units expiring in June and December. Okay, and I can see from the polling results here that uh, a lot of people see um, uh, have not yet done developed a plan with policies, procedures, and actions. And so I would encourage, we asked uh, Monica to give you the link there, which you see in the presentation, so that you can go uh, see what uh, San Luis Obispo has done, and maybe that'll help expedite your preparations in your own community. So let's let's move forward and uh, jump into the bargaining strategies. How did you uh, go about implementing this? Great. Okay. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that I'm really proud of at San Luis Obispo is um, we have strong policy foundation um, as it relates to being at the table with our bargaining units. So I've provided links to all of these philosophies and our labor relations objectives. Um, what's key to me is that they all to each other in some uh, way, and it is basically the common thread that is uh, follows through each one of these, is that we understand that we need to have competitive compensation in order to attract and retain well-qualified employees. Um, that is how we provide service to the community primarily, um, but at the same time, that compensation must be financially sustainable. So we are not, in our compensation philosophy, we're not locked into any sort of formula related to what is the market doing. The fiscal responsibility philosophy was adopted in advance of the renewal of the half-cent sales tax measure, and it really speaks to balancing long-term infrastructure needs and more immediate needs. And um, at the time, there was concern, to, uh, concern about the cost of um, 
of compensation, in particular anticipating uh, future pension costs. And so there are tenants in there that, again, speak to increases in compensation must be offset by increases in revenue, and then that employees will share the cost of retirement and health benefits. And so that's what I wanted to highlight. I do find that having that strong policy foundation, things that are adopted by council, uh, really does help at the bargaining table. The other thing that is helpful is um, both times that I have uh, been in the uh, position of negotiating concessions, the overall amount was adopted by council in open session. So when we took the fiscal health response plan to council, um, we showed the pie chart that said, here's how we think we can solve the problem. And so employees understood that over three years, we were looking for $1.9 million in savings. Um, the way that we backed into that was my team actually developed a model of what we felt could be negotiated, um, what we felt was reasonable and would balance um, our, our need to attract and retain employees. Um, as I, I think it was Steve Berlin mentioned, police officers really difficult to, um, to uh, attract. We have some other areas where we've got recruiting difficulties. And so our model was around how can we give modest cost of living increases and then have employees basically in turn give most of those cost of living increases back to the city in increased uh, comp um, contributions to retirement. And as I just mentioned, we were fortunate in terms of uh, having many of our uh, of our agreements expiring right as right after we were having council adopt the uh, fiscal health response plan. There was only one bargaining unit, our smallest, that um, has not been at the table since that plan was adopted. They'll come uh, actually just in a few months, but basically a year later. We purposefully did not ask for a reopener. We didn't um, think that that was feasible. And so um, just said that, hey, we're going to wait uh, and be at the table when their contract expires. From the standpoint of signaling concessions early on and then defining concessions not as a reduction from where compensation is today, but from a, a reduction of where we had anticipated it would be in a forecast, that was, I'm going to say, relatively good news if concessions are ever considered good news from an employee perspective. But it was a little bit of a relief, and I think that also um, worked uh, to our advantage. I want to touch on some of the um, bargaining strategies that we used. Um, we did, as I said, start with that strong policy foundation. We shared, um, so we had invited all employees to see all of the information, but then we brought in finance and we went through the fiscal forecast again. We talked through that actuarial analysis. Um, so we were really open and transparent with the fiscal health response plan and council's objective related to that. And just to plug here again, as Steve Heidi mentioned, um, if you haven't done this and are thinking about uh, engaging experts, just make sure that you're budgeting for that. 
um, the education of employees, council, and community was really important, and we did that probably six months before we were at the table. Um, so it wasn't a shock, it wasn't a surprise. People had been anticipating it. Um, I think understanding the demographics and the impacts on various retirement tiers is critical. We've touched on that. The, um, the concern about HEPRA employees are already paying more. We debated that internally, and our approach was to give everybody the same cost of living increase and to ask for the same contribution percentage-wise um, in increased retirement. And our kind of model has been a 2% cost of living increase with a 1.5% uh, give back in terms of increased cost sharing. So over three years, we're increasing. The first year was status quo. So over three years, we're increasing um, cost of living by 4%, and 3% of that is coming back in terms of increased cost sharing. I think it's important to tailor solutions to various bargaining groups. Um, that was also touched upon earlier. Um, things that are important to public safety are, aren't as pertinent to the general unit. Our public safety employees have many more special pays than our non-public safety units, so there's more flexibility with those special pays. Um, for probably about five years now, We've been very purposeful in trying to negotiate away from percentage of base and moving to that flat rate. Um, we wanted to reach three-year agreements, so we wanted our MOA term to correlate to our fiscal health response plan. One of the ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the ways that we were able to motivate group, groups to do that when there's only four percent cost of living on the table and three of that is coming back in increased cost sharing, was to use lump sum payments um, to motivate the and get the longer-term agreement. We were successful with our fire unit, uh, with our police unit, and of course with our unrepresented uh, management employees. We were not successful with our uh, general unit, so we did a one-year status quo agreement with them, and we'll be back at the table in the next few months. Um, again, talking about the second and third year of the fiscal health response plan. So I touched on the alignment of the contracts. And then um, most important, and I feel this way whenever I'm at the bargaining table, but um, just having a consistent message uh, and the consistent support coming from council and coming from city manager. And I think in tough times, um, having a message from council about appreciation for employees goes a long way. Thank you. Wow, great material there. Uh, so once you've established a foundation, uh, which of these items that uh, Monica was highlighting uh, do you think would be valuable for your agency to undertake to help be successful in moving these issues forward? While that's going on, I'm going to bring back um, the rest of the panelists here for some quick closing uh, comments. Uh, we do have uh, questions that are coming here, so if you come back on your um, on your um, webcam and off mute, uh, we'll cover a couple things. I do want to uh, clarify here, uh, Monica, to you, one question that's come up is 
uh, people are asking, what were your thoughts about uh, paying down versus borrowing, you know, borrowing to pay down more, uh, paying down directly to PERS versus uh, doing some trust fund? Uh, how did you navigate those? If you could just give us a, a brief answer. A lot of, a lot of complexity there, but uh, what was the bottom line uh, you came to about why you made the choices you did at this time? Um, I'll acknowledge that there is a lot of complexity there. And, um, you know, part of our decision to make uh, direct payments was working with our actuarial um, and asking for her advice on that and then also working with CalPERS. Um, another really easy win that we implemented was we had been making um, monthly payments to CalPERS, and so we didn't have a cash flow problem. Um, we had one-time money available, and so in this last year, we have changed over in our making um, the prepayment, the annual prepayment, which has saved us significantly. Um, so. I, we want to have the flexibility, and we're still navigating through. If we put money in the 115 trust, what's the right time then to make additional payments? <laughs> um, which can be uh, challenging. I think the 115 trust is really important for agencies that potentially have cash flow issues because it does allow you to make the required pay annual payments as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very helpful information. So let, let's take a look here uh, uh, at other topics. Um, we'd love to get your feedback on these. I'm checking to see what's happening with our polling function here. Okay, we're going to take those off and we're going to go back to the a final polling question here. And while we're doing that, I'd like to ask uh, Steve Heidi, would you take a moment, uh, Steve, to just uh, cover some key takeaways you'd like people to have from today's session while people are ticking off areas that they felt uh, were of value for them and for their agency from today's session? Click off as many as you think were applicable. Um, and Steve, a few uh, quick closing comments. and. Want to really thank Steve Berliner um, and Monica Irons for their presentation. Steve Heidi for helping to bring them home for our audience. And Steve, a few closing thoughts for our audience as they complete this uh, final polling question. Sure, I know we're short on time, so I'll try to be concise. Don, uh, we were talking offline uh, prior to starting the webinar that CalPERS uh, and Monica mentioned this is, as as I understand it, in process of rolling out their 115 trust for retirement potentially July 1. I'm not here to advocate for CalPERS or any other potential 115 uh, trust provider, but I think it's timely for those folks that haven't looked closely at the 115 to do so, particularly now with CalPERS entering into the fray as well as the private providers that are available. We have a 115 trust, obviously that's not with PERS. Um, and so, you know, we talked about your professional network. I can't emphasize the importance of ensuring you have that in support of your efforts if you don't already have that in place. Also, um, you know, take the time and make sure you understand your actuarial valuations. Our June 30, 18 valuations from CalPERS for those that are PERS agencies are coming out this summer. Uh, those are public documents. I, I think you should share those with labor. 
management, certainly human resources and finance should be working closely uh, as those documents are received. And if you, in my mind, pay attention to no other page than page five in the PERS valuation that has the five-year projections in addition to next year's rates, um, you know, use that as a starting point for discussion. Again, it is what it is, uh, but it's important, I think, to understand the, that and to share that. And then finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about additional training opportunities. GFOA is going to be here in Los Angeles in May. I think that's a great opportunity not only to get specific training on related issues, but also to network with your other professional colleagues uh, that have uh, similar issues, and some of which may be further ahead on the curve than you. You can certainly uh, learn from others. And then finally, uh, attend your local CSMFO chapter meetings. Again, there are some specific topics along these lines, uh, I'm sure, over the balance of this year, but the networking as well, I just can't emphasize enough. And then finally, would definitely be remiss if I didn't give a quick pitch for the 2020 conference. Uh, CSMFO's annual conference at the Disneyland Hotel, January 28th to the 31st of next year. And I know we will have several associated topics to this as this is going to continue to be a hotbed issue for the foreseeable future. So thanks, Don. Okay, great. Thank you, Steve Heidi. And so we, again, are very grateful to uh, Steve Berliner, partner at Liebert Cassidy Whitmore, for your great uh, background on the legal aspects of these issues. Monica Irons at the City of San Luis Obispo for your outstanding efforts there to bring this together in a holistic way, creating a strong foundation for your agency and community now and in the future. And Steve Heidi, thanks for being a great color commentator here and for being a great volunteer leader in CSMFO. So this is Don Mariska on behalf of the CSMFO coaching program, thanking you all for being here. Uh, again, thanking our presenters for the, the extra work they did to make today's session productive for you, and look forward to your participation in future sessions. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everybody. Bye.